we took one bow, many arrows, two daggers, two hatchets, a gourd tied to my hip with a piece of cloth inside, and set out before first light. Are we finding the boy or killing him? I said to the leopard, He's seven days ahead. These are if someone finds him first. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing Marlon James read from his new novel, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Plus readings by Ilya Kaminsky and Valeria Luiselli. So stick around. Welcome to the 24th, the two dozenth episode of Ampersand and the first of 2019. This episode also closes out four years of bringing this podcast to your ears, which is kind of hard to believe. You know, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> does. And we've got some great new poetry and fiction on the docket today. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode of Ampersand is brought to you in part by the Sewanee Writers' Conference. From July 16th through the 28th, the University of the South will host the 30th Annual Sewanee Writers' Conference. Thanks to the generosity of the Walter E. Dakin Memorial Fund, supported by the state of Tennessee Williams, the conference will gather distinguished faculty to provide instruction and criticism through workshops and craft lectures in poetry, fiction, and playwriting. Fellowships and scholarships are available, and the application deadline is March 20th. Apply online and find out more at sewaneewriters.org. April 2019 issue is here, and in addition to some inspiring resources on writing retreats, we also have three excellent profiles of writers with books coming out in the next two months, and we're really excited to have all three of them reading from their new books, starting with the author of one of the most anticipated novels of the spring, Marlon James. Yes, indeed. Marlon James, who is the author of three previous books of fiction, including the Man Booker Prize-winning novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, is back this month with Black Leopard, Red Wolf, the first installment of his Dark Star trilogy, an epic fantasy that's being called The African Game of Thrones. And this book is truly epic. It follows two shape-shifting mercenaries, Leopard and Tracker, on an odyssey through a Dark Ages version of the African continent, across ancient cities and dense forests in search of a missing boy. Along the way, they encounter all sorts of mythical creatures, including vampires, witches, wizards, trickster monkeys, and one very wise buffalo. Adventure and swashbuckling ensue, but so do deeper explorations of truth, power, queerness, and the desire to understand one another. 
Born and raised in Jamaica, James currently resides in Minneapolis and teaches at McAllister College in St. Paul. And Kima Jones, a writer who has contributed to our pages in the past and who owns and operates Jack Jones Literary Arts in Los Angeles, interviewed James in L.A. just before the release of the new novel. You can read that profile, Shapeshifter, in the new issue of the magazine. But now we're going to hear Marlon James read a section from the new novel. Here he is with an excerpt of Black Leopard, Red Wolf. We took one bow, many arrows, two daggers, two hatchets, a gourd tied to my hip with a piece of cloth inside, and set out before first light. Are we finding the boy or killing him? I said to the leopard, He's seven days ahead. These are if someone finds him first. He said behind me, trusting my nose, even though I did not. The boy's smell was too strong in one spot, too weak in the other, even if his path was set right before me. Two nights later, his trail was still ahead of us. Why did he go north? Back to the village? Why go west? I asked. I stopped, and the leopard walked past me, turned south, and stopped after ten paces. He stooped down to sniff the grass. Who said he was from your village? He asked. He did not go south, if you're trying to pick up the boy. He's your charge. Not mine. I was sniffing out dinner. Before I said more, he was on all paws and gone into the thicket. This was a dry area, trees skinny as stalks, as if starving for rain, the ground red and tough with cracked mud. Most of the trees had no leaves, and branches sprouted branches that sprouted branches so thin I thought they were thorns. It looked like water had made an enemy of this place, but a water hole was giving off scent not far away. Near enough that I heard the splash, the snarl, and a hundred hooves stampeding away. Leopard got to me before I got to the river, still on four paws, a dead antelope in his mouth. That night he watched in disgust as I cooked my portion. He was back on two legs, but eating the antelope leg raw, ripping away the skin with his teeth, sinking into the flesh and licking the blood off his lips. I wanted to enjoy flesh the way he enjoyed flesh. My burned and black leg disgusted me as well. He gave me a look that said he could never understand why any animal in these lands would eat prey by burning it first. He had no nose for spices, and I had none to put on the meat. A part of the antelope was not cooked, and I ate it, chewed it slow, wondering if this was what he ate when he ate flesh, warm and easy to pull apart, and if the feeling of iron spilled in your mouth was a good one. I would never like it. His face was lost in that leg. The trees are different, I said. Different kind of forest. The trees are selfish here. They share nothing under the earth. Their roots send nothing to other roots. No food, no news. They will not live together, so unless rain comes, they will die together. The boy? His scent is north. It grows neither strong nor weak. Not moving. Asleep? Mayhaps. But if he stays, we find him tomorrow. Sooner than I thought. This could be your life if you wish it. You wish to go on when we find him? He threw down the bone and looked at me. What else did Asani tell you before he tried to drown you? He said, 
you will send me back with the boy, but will not return. I said I might not return, not will not. Which is it? That depends on what I find, or what finds me. What is it to you? Nothing. Nothing at all. He grinned, stood up, and came over beside me. The fire threw harsh lines on his face and lit up his eyes. Why do you go back? She wants her bladder, not the cursed Sankoma, the village. Why do you go back to the village? My family is there. You have no one there. Asani told me all that awaits you is a vendetta. That is still something, is it not? No. He looked to the fire. His mouth goes sick from the sight of cooking, but he made the fire. From the gourd I pulled the piece of cloth carrying the boy's scent. These were not trees he could sleep in, even if he preferred to sleep off the ground. Come with me, he said. Where? No, I mean, come with me after this. After we find the boy. She has no interest in him. She wants her foul bladder to place in her foul hair. We find him, scare him, send him back. We go west. Kava wants, is a sunny lord over anyone here? Something came to pass between you two. Nothing came to pass. That is the stick between us. He passes you in years, but in every other way, he is the man younger. Gambles with lives and kills for sport. The disgusting features of your form. Then stop changing into it. You raise no cry over the disgusting acts you like. Name the like. You think in this kind of moon you can judge me, little boy? There are lands where men who love men get their cocks cut off and are left to bleed to death. Besides, I do as gods do. Of all the terrible features of your form, shame is the worst. I knew he was looking at me. I was staring into the flames, but could feel him turn his head. The night wind was sending a fragrance I did not know. Ripeness from fruit, maybe, but nothing was fruitful in this bush. This made me remember something, and I was surprised that I only now remembered it. What happened to them who were following us? Who? The night we came to Sangoma, the little woman said somebody was following us. She is always fearing something or someone is after her. You believed it too. I don't believe in fear, but I believe in her belief. Besides, there are at least ten and six enchantments to throw off hunters and wanderers. Like vipers? No, those are always real, he said with a wicked smile. He reached over and grabbed my shoulder. Go be with pleasant dreams. Tomorrow, we find the boy.
the new issue, we also have an interview with Ilya Kaminsky, who is a brilliant poet, whose second poetry collection, Deaf Republic, is coming out from Grey Wolf Press in March. I have essentially been dreaming about this feature for four years, ever since I met Ilya and the amazing author who interviews him, none other than Garth Greenwell, in the mountains of central Bulgaria, of all places. I spent nearly a week getting to know Garth and Ilya, who were already close friends, in Koprivstitsa at the 2015 International Poetry Conference, sponsored by the Elizabeth Kostova Foundation. One of the ultimate highlights, like sky highlights, was talking with Ilya, whose debut collection, Dancing in Odessa, was published by Tupelo Press in 2004. In this issue's feature, titled Still Dancing, Garth describes his first impressions of Ilya when they met 20 years ago, and his words really perfectly capture what it's like to encounter Ilya for the first time. He writes, quote, Ilya's brilliance was unmistakable. He was different from anyone else I had ever met. In the breadth of his knowledge of the poetic canon across time and languages, in the intensity of his commitment to poetry as something more than an art, as a kind of unifying principle of existence. So Ilya was born in Odessa in the then Soviet Union in 1977. Substantially deaf from the age of four, he spoke no English when he immigrated to the United States with his family at 16. And yet he studied at the University of Rochester and Georgetown University and has a JD from the University of California, Hastings College of the Law. His honors include a Whiting Award, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Metcalf Award, a Lannan Fellowship, Poetry Magazine's Levinson Prize, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He is the editor-in-chief of the literary journal Poetry International, and after several years teaching in the Graduate Creative Writing Program at San Diego State University, Ilya now holds the Bourne Poetry Chair at Georgia Tech. His new book, Deaf Republic, is a kind of parable and poem set in an unnamed occupied territory during a time of political unrest. The poetic narrative starts with a gunshot. While breaking up a protest, a soldier shoots and kills a young deaf boy. And this horrific act renders the entire town deaf. The citizens coordinate their silent insurgency with sign language as the book follows the private lives of townspeople encircled by public violence. It's a love story. It's a collection of poems about terror and carnage and witness and political dissent and even the power of puppeteering. The conversation in this issue between Garth and Ilya is so inspiring and heartbreaking and educational and beautiful, and I'm just really proud to be sharing it with our readers. I also asked Ilya to read from his new book, and he graciously agreed. Now, you're in for a real treat. Prepare yourself. A reading by Ilya Kaminsky is an event. It's a performance. Hearing him read is not a passive experience. It engages more than just your ears. So here he is, reading from his new book of poems, Deaf Republic. Hello. My name is Ilya Kaminsky. I will read three poems from Deaf Republic. The first poem is called Believe It Happily During the War. We live it happily during the war. And when they bombed other people's houses, we protested. But not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed, around my bed, America was fallen. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside. And watched the sun. In a six-month 
of a disastrous rain in a house of money, in a street of money, in a city of money, in a country of money, our great country of money. We, for the vast, lived happily during the war. The next poem is called A Soldier's March. Alfonso covers the boy's face with a newspaper. Putting people, most of us trenchers, watch Sonia Neal by Peter shot in the middle of the street. She picks up his spectacles, shining like two coins, balances them on his nose. Observe this moment, how it convulses. Snow falls on the ducks, runs into the street like medics. Fourteen of us watch. Then I kiss his forehead. Her shot a hole torn in the sky. It shimmers the park bench in the portraits. We see in Sonia's open mouth the nakedness of the whole nation. She stretches out beside the little snowman napping in the middle of the street. As picking up its ballet, the country runs. And finally, here is a little poem called Alfonso in Snow. You are alive, I whispered to myself. Therefore, something in you listens. Something runs down the street, falls, fails to get up. I run, etc. With my locks and my hands behind my pregnant wife, etc. Down Washington Street, I run it. Only takes a few minutes, etc. To make a man. Sally has a new novel out. It's called Lost Children Archive, and it was just published by Knopf. Louis Sully is the author of some really excellent books of fiction and nonfiction, including The Story of My Teeth, Sidewalks, and Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions, 
all of which were published by Coffeehouse Press. Lewis Ellie is a phenomenal writer and thinker. I saw her give a talk in Brooklyn a few years ago and discovered that she is just as smart and compelling in person as she is in writing. Originally from Mexico City and having lived in eight other countries throughout her life, Lewis Ellie is doing some incredibly important work concerning immigration in the United States, in both her writing and her life outside of it. She leads a workshop with undocumented children in New York and works as an interpreter in a federal immigration court. In her writing, she explores immigration, borders, and the immigrant experience, both her own and that of others, with incisiveness, urgency, and wonder. And she does the thing that I think all great essayists do best. Rather than trying to find the answers, she seeks instead to ask better questions. And while her new book is a novel, it does a similar kind of work. It follows a family of four whose names and ethnicities we never learn as they road trip across the country from New York to Arizona. The couple are audio archivists, and their destination on this journey is Apacheria, the place the Apaches once called home. Why Apaches? asks the 10-year-old son. Because they were the last of something, answers the father. The family, which is facing a crisis of its own, is trying to hold on to its own foundations while attempting to understand those of the country across which they travel. It's a book that is at once a great American road trip novel and an investigation of the complexities of family, immigration, justice, and equality in the United States. We have an interview with Luiselli in the new issue of the magazine, and we're going to hear her read a section from the new novel now. So here is Valeria Luiselli with an excerpt from Lost Children Archive. I don't know what my husband and I will say to each of our children one day. I'm not sure which parts of our story we might each choose to pluck and edit out for them, and which ones we'll shuffle around and insert back in to produce a final version. Even though plucking, shuffling, and editing sounds is probably the best summary of what my husband and I do for a living. But the children will ask, because ask is what children do. And we'll need to tell them a beginning, a middle, and an end. We'll need to give them an answer, tell them a proper story. The boy turned 10 yesterday, just one day before we left New York. We got him good presents. He had specifically said, no toys. The girl is five and for some weeks has been asking insistently, when do I turn six? No matter our answer, she'll find it unsatisfactory. So we usually say something ambiguous like, soon, in a few months, before you know it. The girl is my daughter and the boy is my husband's son. I'm a biological mother to one, a stepmother to the other, and a de facto mother in general to both of them. My husband is a father and a stepfather, to each one respectively, but also just a father. The girl and boy are therefore stepsister, son, stepdaughter, daughter, stepbrother, sister, stepson, brother. And because hyphenations and petty nuances complicate the sentences of everyday grammar, the us, the them, the our, the your, as soon as we started living together, when the boy was almost six and the girl still a toddler, we adopted the much simpler possessive adjective, our, to refer to them too. They became our children, and sometimes the boy, the girl. Quickly, the two of them learned the rules of our private grammar and adopted the generic nouns mama and papa, or sometimes simply ma and pa. And until now, at least, our family lexicon defined the scope and limits of our shared world. 
Family Plot My husband and I met four years ago, recording a soundscape of New York City. We were part of a large team of people working for New York University's Center for Urban Science and Progress. The soundscape was meant to sample and collect all the keynotes and the sound marks that were emblematic of the city. Subway cars screeching to a halt, music in the long underground hallways of 42nd Street, ministers preaching in Harlem, bells, rumors, and murmurs inside the Wall Street Stock Exchange. But it also attempted to survey and classify all the other sounds that the city produced and that usually went by as noise, unnoticed. Cash registers opening and closing in delis, a script being rehearsed in an empty Broadway theater, underwater currents in the Hudson, Canada geese flocking and shitting over Van Cortlandt Park, swings swinging in Astoria playgrounds, elderly Korean women filing wealthy fingernails on the Upper West Side, a fire breaking through an old tenement building in the Bronx, a passerby yelling a stream of motherfuckers at another. There were journalists, sound artists, geographers, urbanists, writers, historians, acoustomologists, anthropologists, musicians, and even bathymetrists, with those complicated devices called multi-beam echo sounders, which were plunged into the water spaces surrounding the city, measuring the depth and contours of the riverbeds and who knows what else. Everyone, in couples or small groups, surveyed and sampled wavelengths around the city, like we were documenting the last sounds of an enormous beast. The two of us were paired up and given the task of recording all the languages spoken in the city over a period of four calendar years. The description of our duties specified, surveying the most linguistically diverse metropolis on the planet and mapping the entirety of languages that its adults and children speak. We were good at it, it turned out. Maybe even really good. We made a perfect team of two. Then, after working together for just a few months, we fell in love, completely, irrationally, predictably, and headfirst, like a rock might fall in love with a bird, not knowing who the rock was and who the bird. And when summer arrived, we decided to move in together. The girl remembers nothing about that period, of course. The boy says he remembers that I was always wearing an old blue cardigan that had lost a couple of buttons and came down to my knees, and that sometimes, when we rode the subway, or buses always with freezing air pouring out, I'd take it off and use it as a blanket to cover him and the girl, and that it smelled of tobacco and was itchy. Moving in together had been a rash decision, messy, confusing, urgent, and as beautiful and real as life feels when you're not thinking about its consequences. We became a tribe. Then came the consequences. We met each other's relatives, got married, started filing joint taxes, became a family. So, for the avid listener... And we know you're out there. <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> 
You may recall that a while back we shared our very important library of made-up words. Which are stored in the very advanced card catalog (laughs) consisting of post-it notes stuck to my computer monitor. (laughs) Yes. And we invited listeners to share some of their own made-up words. Well, lo and behold, we got an email not too long ago from one Jim Armstrong, who you might call a professional wordsmith. Jim reached out to share a project of his in which he came up with a new word for each letter of the alphabet. On his website, he offers the definition and etymology of each word, then provides some useful examples. And some of these words uh, were clearly conceived in the mind of the writer. Right. Uh, There's root. 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 I think maybe it, is it root? It's either root or rugged. (laughs) Rugged. Uh, W-R-U-G-H-T, um, from the old English writen. I think it's writen, yeah. And the imitative ugh, <laughs> meaning dread of writing, or, quote, the feeling of horror from having to put words on a page. I feel that. Right, so it would be... Rugged. Rugged. He's got the pronunciations <laughs> on the website, too. I think it's like... Rugged. Yeah. Ugh. Rugged. Rugged. Okay. Um, okay, so there's vocabulary, which is V-O-C-A-B-U-L-L-A-R-Y. Vocabulary. Yeah. A language of falsehood and nonsense. Quote, a vocabulary consists of a body of untrue words and expressions. Those who rely on a vocabulary can be insecure, delusional, controlling, and or in desperate need of admiration and attention. Right. That's weird. Does that remind you of someone? <laughs> you mean like someone who holds the top position of power in our country? That's the one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's also emol. <laughs> E-M-A-U-L, or abusive email. Quote, the incessant harassment of an inbox with unwanted, unneeded messages that aggravate, annoy, and anger. (laughs) I feel like I get a decent amount of email. (laughs) Email. I like that. Yeah. Also important to keep in mind, as Armstrong notes, it's been reported that receiving an email can trigger some recipients to respond with an email. It's a vicious cycle. (laughs) And finally, my personal favorite... Zerote, which means simply nothing to write about. You can find Jim Armstrong's entire library of made-up words at armstrongwords.com. Thanks for sharing, Jim. And that's it for this episode. And thank you for listening to Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Valavino. Music for this episode was provided by Yacht, FitBasic, Adam and Alma, and Clinic. Audio recordings from Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James, and Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli were provided by Penguin Random House. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode at pw.org forward slash ampersand. Interested in advertising on a future episode? Email us at ampersand at pw.org.